Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their book at a Warren Public Library. Today's book, Anger Anonymous, the big book on anger addiction by Dr. Dennis Ortman. Dr. Ortman is a Sterling Heights-based clinical psychologist specializing in addictions. More now from Dr. Ortman. Thank you all for coming. <clears throat> my name is Dennis Ortman. Um, actually, my roots are here. I'm an East Sider. I grew up in the Detroit area. And uh, I was a Catholic priest for 14 years. And I was just down the road at St. Martin de Porres for seven years. So if I don't know if, if any of you are from that area, if you would know me. I was there with Father Hall ages ago, okay. And then I left the priesthood to get married, and I became a psychologist. So that's my second career. So I've been a psychologist for almost 25 years. So uh, it's a while. And I'm in private practice in Sterling Heights on Metro Parkway near Mound. So this is all my, my area. Well, when I started studying uh, psychology, I went to uh, University of uh, U of D Mercy. And I don't know if you know about it, it's a Catholic Jesuit place. And the psych program there is psychoanalytic. So I was trained in, in Freudian techniques. If you know anything about Freud and religion, he says it's just an obsession and he dismisses it. Well, that put me in conflict with myself because I was a priest, religion was important, and I became a psychologist where religion was dismissed. And I was seeking for a way to integrate both spirituality and psychology in, in my work. And this is the fruits of, of my efforts in some of the writings that I've been doing. I try to integrate both of them. In a sense, put soul or psyche back into psychology. Um, the other connection here and why this topic tonight is, is I grew up in an alcoholic family. So I dealt with addictions my whole life. I went to Al-Anon and ACOA uh, and those kinds of things. And my specialty has been in my work is with addictions. Um, and I did my dissertation on treating the dually diagnosis, people with addictions and emotional problems. Well, in my work, I'm in private practice as a psychologist, what I've come to observe is that people love their illnesses. People love their illnesses. And they hate it, but they also love them. And what I've come to realize is that there's an addictive quality to a lot of their conditions, um, to anxiety, uh, depression, and now, as I'll talk tonight, on anger. And the most effective program for dealing with addictions has been the 12 steps, which interestingly enough is an integration of both psychology and spirituality. It is probably the most powerful Native American spirituality and path of healing and growth that we have. And addictions, uh, the 12 steps were used first with alcohol and then with uh, other chemical dependencies. Then they came to realize that there are also process addictions like gambling and oversexing, uh, shopaholics, workaholics, and that kind of thing. And what I've come to realize, there, we can also become addicted to mood states, to habitual ways of thinking that we get stuck in. And that's what I'll get into, and how anger itself can, can become an addiction. Uh, and I'll suggest a way using a modification of the 12 steps, how to work through it. 
Um, I'm not a researcher. I'm a clinical psychologist. So what, you know what I do all day? I sit and listen, and I hear stories. And truth is, is stranger and much more fascinating than, than fiction. And so I, I put this together um, with a lot of the stories I hear and trying to understand what's going on within my, with my patients and finding ways of helping them. And a lot of what I'm writing about is things that I've used with my patients and you know, they say, no, you're nuts, or sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and this is the fruit of, of, of my work with my patients. So there to, um, to be thanked as, as much as anyone. So let me start. Addicted to anger. The first thing I want to say is that anger is a natural energy to fight for yourself when you feel wronged. It acts like a stimulant. It's a natural thing. Like people often label anger as, as uh, a negative emotion. Not at all. It's not negative. It's not positive nor negative. Rather, it's a difficult emotion because the issue is how we use that energy of anger, whether you use it constructively or destructively, and that becomes the issue. Uh, consider anger is like a fire. It's a fire that we have within us, a passion. And of course, fire can be used to give light and heat and warmth, but if it's not used correctly, it can incinerate and cause terrible destruction. And that's the same with our anger. And um, some people say when they have uh, a lot of anger, I just want to get rid of it. Can you imagine what the world would be like if there was zero anger? You know what would happen? The animals would rule. Darwin knew this, the survival of the fittest, and he observed that, that nature is savage, and that's true. And so you have, we have to, in order to survive, we have to have the energy of anger and use it well in order to, to survive in this world, to assert ourselves and not be uh, taken advantage of and, and walked all over. And so we're not talking about getting rid of anger. We're talking about how to use the energy of anger wisely and well. Um, anger, of course, is on a continuum. It's at one end, you might be a little irritated, and then frustrated, and at the other end, furious and enraged. All of it is anger on a continuum. All of us, whether we know it or not, we have different anger styles. And the two general styles that, that I would put is there are dumpers and stuffers. Those that burst out with their anger outwardly, and those that hold their anger in. And sometimes those that hold the anger in aren't aware that they're angry. And that's a real problem. Right? And the, the first quality of any addiction that is, is it's excessive, either too much or too little. And that's what we're talking about with anger. You can have too much of it, or when you stuff it, you have too little of it. Um, uh, Freud used it, he calls uh, anger murderously sweet. I, thought, I, I love that term. Um, because I think with anger, people can come to both love and hate their anger. It serves a purpose. It gives them an adrenaline rush, a sense of power. And, and that's the addictive quality to it. And they see that they can get what they want often with the anger. And so why would you want to give that up? There's a pleasure in that. And that's why people can become hooked on it because of that quality. Another 
characteristic of, uh, of addiction is denial of harm. You ever notice people that have temper outburst? They say, I just got rid of it and it's all done for me. But all the people around them, they might stew about it and, and, the, and the harm that they feel. But the, the person with the temper said, no big deal. Where the harm is especially denied, I think, is those who stuff the anger. And you know what happens when you, when you push that down and repress that anger? You think it goes away? Nope. It grows in intensity, actually. And it comes out in a lot of different ways. One way is depression. Depression is anger turned inward. Uh, another way is all kinds of medical problems. I had one man who has terrible back problems, and what he's come to believe, that it's suppressed anger, that w when you're angry, you tense up, and, and that's what happens to his body. Uh, a, a lot of physical aches and pains are suppressed emotion. Um, you hear all the psychosomatic issues. Uh, there's all kinds of studies how heart disease, high blood pressure, even cancer is associated with, with anger that gets suppressed. But we're not aware of it. And so there's a denial of the harm. Anger is repetitive, obsessive, compulsive. When somebody's angry, if you pay close attention to your thinking, it goes in a, in a loop. And, and you can see, I've been injured, I've been wronged, you're the enemy, you did this on purpose, and I want to seek revenge. It goes round and round and round. And then you want to attack. That's the, the loop that anger's in. Uh, loss of control and powerless. Very often, we, we just talked earlier, um, you said it, at the schools mm -hmm. that the kids are very angry. Yeah. It really comes out of a sense of powerlessness. And the anger becomes a way of compensating for a sense of, of, of not feeling pow powerful. And so they assert themselves often in an aggressive way to feel powerful, like the Hulk. But it comes out of powerlessness, and then it leads to a sense of powerlessness, because often then you, you feel out of control with it. Um, beneath anger also is a will to power, is that you don't like the way the world is, so you want to change it. And, and that's what generates a, a lot of the anger. There's, uh, beneath anger is really an exaggerated sense of self-importance. There's a hidden arrogance when people who don't have control of their anger, because they, they don't like the world. All the shoulds, this, this shouldn't be this way. And, and that's what uh, feeds the, uh, that emotion. Um, Self-medication. Uh, like with all of the drugs, I work, as I mentioned, with a lot of people who are addicted. And probably anyone that is seriously addicted has probably suffered I can't think of a case when it's not true, some trauma in their lives. And so the drug use is a way of self-medicating and coping with that deep hurt and fear, some, some, some deep wounding. That's often the case with anger. People that are most out of control with their anger are often deeply wounded people. And beneath that anger is a great deal of hurt and fear. And so you never work through the anger so you can get at the root cause, which, which I'll get into. And of course, people sometimes feel that it's incurable. 
what the power of the 12 steps, which deals with addictions, is they recognize very clearly that the anger, that, that the, the addictive behavior is not the problem, it's a symptom of the problem. And the more that that uh, addictive behavior is indulged, the more it shapes the personality in, in very predictable ways. And if I were to summarize the, uh, the personality of, of people who are addicted, they're childlike. They become very, very childlike in the way uh, they behave. Um, which is interesting, the, the, the big book of AA says, the heart of addiction is self-centeredness is at the root of all of our troubles. That's the heart of any addiction, including anger. There's a hidden self-centeredness there that's being indulged. Um, the whole tr trouble is the misuse of willpower. Self will run right. I love that definition. And, and that's what angry people are. They want to rule the world. I want what I want now. <clears throat> like I mentioned, I think the 12 steps are the most effective way of, of dealing with any addictive behavior. Uh, let me tell you, Bill Wilson, who's the co-founder of AA, um, let me tell you just briefly how he came to the 12 steps. Well, he was a man who was a hopeless drunk, depressed. He was suicidal, in and out of hospitals. And he had the hardest time stopping drinking. Well, he, he met up one day with an old classmate, and they went to a bar, and uh, he thought he was going to have a few drinks with his old friend. Well, his old friend came in, and he didn't drink, and he looked good. And Bill said, well, you're not drinking? What, how'd you do it? What's, what's your secret? And the man said, I got religion. Bill was, I have nothing, to, he was a skeptic. He was a, a scientific-minded guy, and he said, I don't want to have anything to do with that but he filed that idea back in his mind. Then in his circle of going in and out of hospitals, um, he had what he called the hot flash conversion. Somehow he had the experience that, that there was some divine presence in his life that was overwhelming, and, and that changed him. And he joined a group called the Oxford Group, which is now the moral rearmament, a Christian group. And working with that group, he formulated the 12 steps. 12 is kind of an arbitrary number. Like initially he had a half a dozen steps and then he doubled them. And so the 12 is not magical, it doesn't matter. So anyhow, this was in 1935. What I believe about uh, the 12 steps, it's an American program, distinctly American program of healing and growth. And it, in, it, it encapsulizes uh, both psychology and spirituality and, and ancient wisdom. I believe. And it's a program that won't help. It's not just for people who are addicted. I think it's, it's a, a guide for good living. How many of you are familiar with 12-step programs? Anybody? Okay, so, so you know. Tell me if I'm off. Okay. Yeah. It, it's really a guide to good living. Um, and, and, and the way it, it's very American, it emphasizes like American is a rugged individualism. And the 12 says that you've got to take responsibility for your life. Uh, Practical action. We want results. We want, uh, we want to know what will work and not work. And the steps are about that. Uh, moral idealism. Uh, remember, uh, religion is at the heart of, of, our, of our culture. 
that remember the Puritans were, that came, that found us, were persecuted for the religion. They wanted a place where they could practice the religion freely, and, and also um, they considered coming to America an errand into the wilderness. This would become the new promised land. Um, also, they had a pioneering spirit. They weren't settlers. And I think that's the, the spirit of the 12 steps. And it invites us to take the most fascinating journey that we'll ever take. And you know where that journey is? Within, into our, our own hearts and souls. You don't have to travel around the world. You'll find the most profound mysteries if you just look within. Um, what's interesting, uh, America was founded on, on two things, religion and drugs. Right? Everybody hears about uh, uh, Plymouth Rock, you know, the Thanksgiving and, you know, all that, um, and the Puritans going there. But there was also Jamestown. You know what Jamestown was? All the businessmen came to America to uh, start new businesses, and you know what business they were in? Tobacco. They wanted to get the drugs, they wanted to feed the drug habit of England. And so you, you can see why even today we have such a confused relationship with drugs. I mean, when, when you really look at, I mean, we're going to put people in jail for marijuana, and yet, well, beer or uh, alcohol has caused more problems than anything, but we tried to get rid of that and we couldn't. I mean, so we go round and round, we have a very confused idea but I think drugs were at the basis of our culture. Even tobacco, that causes more harm than whatever. Okay. If I were to summarize the, the, the steps, I look at it as kind of four leaps of faith in the sense that it goes against our natural instincts. Um, AA says the, the, the 12 steps can be summarized in three. Trust God, clean house, and help others. When you stop and think about that, if you use those three slogans as a guide for your life, what do you think your life would be like? It would change you. It's about inner transformation, um, which is interesting. Religion is supposed to be about inner transformation. Um, but unfortunately, for many people, it's become about, you know, believing certain right thing, the right beliefs, and doing the rituals, and following the commandments, and all this kind of thing. And what's been lost for many people with religion is a sense that it's to transform my mind and heart. It's for personal transformation. And that's why I think a lot of people, they say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. More and more people are saying that. Um, What's interesting is, is I think the 12-step groups for many people have become uh, a pathway for authentic religion because it aids them in the path of conversion, inner conversion. Um, re remember when, when, Jesus, um, when Jesus, after he went into the desert and he was baptized, what his first words that came out of his mouth? Reform your lives and believe the good news. So authentic religion is about reforming our lives, transformation. And that's what I think the steps are about. The four leaps of faith are, first, to embrace your pain and powerlessness. Um, that goes against the grain. When people come to me, they're in pain. But by the way, pleasure doesn't teach you anything. You ever notice that? 
Only pain does. And everybody wants to get rid of the pain. And what I tell them, no, don't get rid of it so quickly. Lean into the pain and learn from it. What's the message of this pain? It's telling you something's not working. And so you have to embrace the pain and your powerlessness over it. it goes against the grain. The second, trust God or wake up to who you really are, your real self. And it depend, how, however you want to think of it, it's the divine life within you. Wake up to that. And the way I like to think of that divine life or presence within us is really our higher consciousness. And to engage that and trust that and let that be the guide to our lives. Uh, number three, clean house. It's looking at anger not as the problem, but as a symptom of the problem. So it's like unpeeling the onion, getting to what's at the root of it. And the 12-step program, you have to address the character defects that underlie the addictive behavior. And unless you do that, like people who just stop drinking, but they aren't in recovery, what do they become? Dry drunks. They have the same kind of obnoxious behavior, but they're not drinking. And sometimes people are, they're, they're a lot better to get, easier to get along with when they are drinking. <laughs> so you have to get, recovery is getting to the character defects. And even people who are addicted to anger have character defects that need to be addressed. Help others, which is really growing up. And the, and the antidote to, um, to anger is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And what forgiveness is, is, is simply letting go of the anger and the desire for revenge and replacing it with, with compassion and love. And, and that's what really helping others. And when we do that, when we help others, who are we really helping? Ourselves, right? Because we're not as separate from each other as we think. See, what anger does, it separates people. But what we're talking about is, is that we're all one. Okay. And so, really, the 12 steps are about waking up, uh, cleaning up, and growing up. That's the way I like to think of it. All right, embrace the pain and powerless. This is the first step. Uh, we admitted we were powerless over our anger, that our lives had become unmanageable. Bill Wilson observed, was at the heart of all addictions, including anger, is the desire to play God. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting, when, when, I, when, we, when I talk with this with my patients, said, I don't feel like God when I'm caught up in anxiety or anger or, or whatever. Um, but beneath, it's the big ego. What anger is, beneath anger, is really a craving for power, control, and perfection. Stop and think about it. Who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfect? Who is? Yeah. Only one. Or your wife or your partner. Right. That's what's behind it. And, and what, are, what are the odds of us being perfect? People say, oh, not much. And I said, no, zero. And, and so if, if this is what you're looking for, you will inevitably fail.
And when you fail, the anger arises. But remember, it's the expectations underneath it which we'll get into. All right? Unmanageable lives that we become victims of our own and others' tempers. And we have to feel the pain of that in order to motivate us to change. Um, uh, who is it? The, one of the Eastern uh, writers calls anger the sorrow-bearing enemy. It arises from suffering and causes suffering. And when somebody is caught up in anger, um, I guess I'm not so fr much frightened by them as I feel sorry for them that's sad because they're suffering. And often what's beneath the anger is a great deal of, of woundedness, uh, of pain and, uh, and fear. And, and that's what you have to get, get to in order to, to heal the roots of that anger. Right? If you keep reacting in, in fear to them, see, when you're afraid of somebody who's anger, what you're really picking up on is their fear. Like bullies, right? Are bullies strong people or weak people? Weak. And what they do, they try to inspire fear in other people. You know why? Because they're afraid. And what they do is they make you afraid. And so what you pick up on is really their fear. It's called projection. And it happens over and over again. Because bullies don't pick, up, pick on people who are equally or stronger than themselves. You notice that? That's the clue. All right? The value of anger and pain. As, as I mentioned before, is pain teaches. Um, and it, really, pain is for survival. I mean, we, we wish we'd live in a world without pain. Right, can you imagine what would happen if we never felt physical pain? Would that be heaven or hell? hell. It'd be hell. Why? Because you wouldn't know if it had been hurt. Exactly. That's right. It alerts us to, to a danger, the pain, that something's not right. right? Um, actually, that's what leprosy is. You know, people are all dis disfigured. It's because um, they don't have a sensitivity to pain and they injure themselves and it becomes infected and everything else. And, and if we didn't have pain, sooner or later we'd kill ourselves. Right. Um, the same with our emotions. The distressful emotions are also signals that something's not right. And so we don't want to get rid of them we want to let them lead us to explore, I'm angry about this, what's going on? What am I so angry about? And, and begin that exploration. And unless we do, we're going to get stay, stuck in, in that anger. Right? So what are we powerless over? Right? This is surprising to people. You know what we're powerless over? Our thoughts and feelings. People want to say, I, I want to get rid of my angry thoughts and feelings, and I want to replace them with blissful ones. Nope, you can't. You're powerless over your faults and feelings. They just come. And if you try to, to stop them, you, you become at war with yourself. And what are the odds of winning that battle? Zero. Because then you end up turning the anger against yourself and resisting it and trying to make the anger go away. That, so you get caught in a circle that you can't escape. And so it's admitting your powerlessness over your anger. Those thoughts and feelings just come. Um, we're also, of course, we're powerless over other people, although that's where we try to exert power usually, isn't it? With our anger, 
Um, I'm miserable, so I'm going to change you so I'll feel better. You know, what, what's that about? Over many of our circumstances in our lives, we're powerless over. Uh, we're powerless over the past. It's done. But still we'll dwell about the past and regret and get angry about it. But it's done. Okay? But where are we free? Are we completely powerless? No. And I like to think of it where we are powerful is in the three A's. The first A is attention. When angry thoughts and feelings arise, we can decide how much attention we give to them, how much energy. And, and I tell my patients, it's, it's not a, an on and off switch, it's a dimmer switch. You, you don't have to put energy into it and dwell on these thoughts, because they're usually negative thoughts about something. You don't have to, you're free not to. Also, the second A is attitude. When you have a thought that arises, you have a choice. You can either believe it or question it. You don't have to believe. Everything you think isn't a fact just because you think it. Right? To say, he's an enemy and he's trying to hurt me. That's just a thought. Is it really true? You can believe it, and if you believe that, it'll feed the anger. If you stand back and question it, maybe not. The anger is based on the belief that there's a, uh, anger and fear, that there's a danger. But you don't have to believe it. You can assess what's the real danger here. All right? The third thing is action. We don't have to act on our thoughts. Just because I want to kill somebody doesn't mean I have to do it. Okay? So what I invite my patients is to become an observer, to develop, this is a skill, to be able to stand back and observe themselves with their pure awareness. And, and I use the image, it's like a waterfall. That um, our, our thoughts and feelings are like a, a river, a waterfall that just keeps, keeps going. Some people want to stop it, they get in there, well, it only lasts so long and then sooner or later it, it overwhelms them. So that doesn't work. The other way is to just jump in the stream and get carried away by those thoughts and feelings and act on them. And that doesn't work so well. And so what I invite my patients to do is to stand back and observe them. Observe the flow of thoughts and feelings. Not suppressing them, not pretending they're not there, but not indulging them either. Become that observer. Uh, another image I, I like to use is uh, our thoughts and feelings are like clouds. They, keep, they always pass. It seems like a storm front comes in and they're not going to move, but they always do. Our thoughts and feelings come and go. Our thoughts and feelings come from us like clouds, but they're not us. We're the blue sky. And I even refer to the, their thoughts as thought bubbles. They, they have no more substance or truth or weight than we give them. And we're free. We don't have to believe all these crazy thoughts that come into our minds. It's interesting, the word, uh, when we're mad, angry, mad and madness have the same root. Because if we believe in, in the, our insane thoughts, we'll act with, with madness and craziness. But we don't have to. This is from the Tao Te Ching. The 12 steps, I just want to show you that they're not new and they come from really common sense and, and wisdom. This is from 2,500 years ago. Does this sound like step one? Failure is an opportunity. If you blame someone else, there's no end to the blame. Blame is anger, by the way. Do, do we live in a blaming culture? Yep, 
And what that is, it's a flight from responsibility. It's really the victim mentality. It's prevalent in our culture. Anybody that's, when people are blaming everybody else, what they're saying is, you're the cause of all my problems and I have no control over my life. That's being a victim, okay? Therefore, the master fulfills her own obligations and corrects her own mistakes. She does what she needs to do and demands nothing of others. That's personal That, to me, is the best definition of maturity. Trust God, your higher power. That's step two and three. Um, you probably noticed there's a crisis of faith today. Um, all kinds of studies about you know why and, and all of this. It, it's clear. Um, 16 to 20 percent of Americans consider themselves uh, either atheists, agnostics, have nothing to do with church. By the way, that's worldwide, it, it seems that way. Um, only 20% of Americans go to church weekly. So it's, it, we're not fully engaged in that. And more and more people, as I mentioned earlier, consider themselves spiritual and not religious. 30% um, of those under uh, 30 years old consider themselves agnostics or uh, atheists, which, which I understand that they're searching for something deeper. Okay? that organized religion has failed in many ways. I was a Catholic priest, and look at what's happened with uh, priest sex abuse again. I was in a par two parishes in the uh, early 80s, and I, re I replaced two priests who were convicted of child molesting. This is early 80s, and this didn't all come out till 2000. You see spotlight? So this is going on along, that's outrageous that that happened. And there's people are angered about it, and, and there is a righteous anger, by the way, ab about that. Okay, and look at the other churches, the way women are treated, and uh, the meanness that comes out in the battle over homosexuality and all of this. And, and the thought I always have: Would Jesus react this way? And, and so, in many ways, the institutional churches have lost credibility in the leadership. Um, uh, another thing that's going on, I think, is. Um, I think religious language is, is a problem for a lot of people. Um, a lot of the tr traditional religious language that's in the scriptures is from 2,000 years ago, you know, in which um, you know, the earth, was the, the center of the universe was the earth, and you have heaven up there, and uh, here, then the underworld. Does that make any sense? Anybody that has a scientific mind, it doesn't make any sense. In, in, and, and so some people try to take it literally and, and make it all fit, but it, it, it doesn't work. And it, it's hard for people to appreciate its metaphor. And so we're struggling to find a language and a way of thinking about God that works. When, when Nietzsche said in the 19th century, God is dead, he doesn't mean the, the real God is dead, but our ways of thinking and talking about God is dead. It doesn't work for a lot of people. Right. And so I, I think we're, we're struggling to, to find, uh, and, and the 12 steps said that, when they say, made a decision to turn our, over, ourselves over to the care of God as we understood him. So it's not, there's no one way to do it. 
that each of us has a personal task to try to understand, develop God in our own ways that work for us, and develop a, a spiritual intelligence that, that works. Uh, like a lot of the, the things that I learned, you know, growing up in a, as a Catholic, it, uh, with the catechism and all that, it was appropriate for grade school, you know, in third grade, you know, I learned all these things, and it seems like everything's, um, but as I become an adult, the answers I got in the third grade don't work. And so I have to work at developing a, a more mature spiritual intelligence, different way of understanding God's presence. Um, because I, I think coming to believe, came to believe, is not a once and only, it's a process. It's more about mystery and the unknown than having clear, simple answers. It's more about a lifestyle, a way of living, than just having a belief system. It's more about um, opening our minds and hearts rather than getting set on fixed ideas and being right and having the best way. Um, it's more about the heart than the mind. And it's, it's not a destination, not something final, but it's a process. We're always learning and growing in our faith if we're alive um, because we're delving deeper and deeper into the mystery of it all. It's bigger than our capacity to understand it. And so all the black and white answers come across as arrogance. You know, how do I know what God's will is for me? Well, the Bible, well, how do you know that applies? I mean, you have to think and grapple with it, and that's mature living. Okay. So a power greater, where do we find this power greater? You can find them beyond, around, or within. Um, most people tend to find God beyond, a personal God, a father, almost for some becomes like a sky God in heaven. Where could heaven possibly be? We don't know. The universe is expanding. And, uh, but it's a personal God, about 60% of people. About 25% want to think as God around us as some life force, like the, what are the movies, the, may the force be with you, some life force or creative intelligence or, or that kind of thing. Um, and how I like to think of, of finding the divine is within, in our higher consciousness, that we have to explore or go within ourselves to discover who God is for us. No matter where we find God, however we think of it, however we experience it, we have to always ask the question, what kind of God is it that you believe in? What's interesting, those that believe in a personal God, you know how many, uh, of how many people, what percentage believe that God is forgiving? Small, about 23%. The vast majority of people that believe in a personal God think of God as a judge, as, as a critic, or as distant. Well, if that's how you think of God, um, that's not going to be very much of a motivational factor for you to transform your life. You know, so if you think of yourselves as made in the image and likeness of God, well, what God am I? Am I the judging God? By the way, that's what anger is. It's a judging. So it, angry people have an angry God. <laughs> they match. We project, we project, we see others as we are. So we project our own ideas of God on God and make him in our own image. Um, but the New Testament... It's clear that, that God is a forgiving father. 
over and over again. 95% of it is about a forgiving God. But that's, it hasn't been assimilated by most Christian people. All right. Even if we think of God in more scientific terms as, as God is the energy within the universe, we still have to ask the question that Einstein put to us. It says, the, the, the fundamental question is, do you believe that we live in a hostile or a friendly universe? There's plenty of evidence for both. So you can, you can build a case for either way, but ultimately it's, it's what you come to believe in. Okay? So the God within, um, and I think if we pay close attention, and this is what I in, invite my patients to do, they often ask me, um, uh, what can I do for homework? So just pay attention to yourself. What do you mean? Just observe and be quiet and still with yourself and observe what's going on. And if we do that, we'll become more and more aware that we have a higher consciousness, a wise mind that can observe all the chaos of thoughts and feelings within us. But it takes effort. It takes effort to cultivate that. And uh, a lot of people who are addicted, you know what the great enemies of addicts are? Work and time. You know why? And money too. But I'm thinking they want quick, easy fixes. And, and so what, what, what people who are angry, who are addicted to anger, they just keep reacting on automatic pilot because that's easy. But, but when we're talking about developing a higher consciousness and cultivating that, that takes work, it takes effort. And to, to break away from that, um, that automatic uh, kind of responding. And so if we pay attention to the two minds, that if we become an observer, we'll observe we have at least two minds going on. And so we ask ourselves, which mind do we want to trust? Uh, I would call the, the angry mind the mind of, of rejection. It has high expectations about how life should be. So whenever anybody starts using should, you know they're, they're into the, the mind of rejection. So they're always, they're always judging and criticizing. It's the us against them mentality. It, it dwells on being wronged and on hurts from the past. Like people who are angry, just pay attention to how, when we get it, we all, we all get angry, but, but how we think and pay attention to the story, the really stories that we're telling ourselves. And it is weird that how badly we've been hurt, we've been wronged. And, um, right. It sees enemies everywhere and it imputes uh, evil intentions often in other people when we're angry. Um, we're preoccupied with protecting ourselves and seeking revenge. It attacks first and asks questions later. That's the angry mind. And we all have it, by the way. It's there, and it's part of the big ego. Um, the other mind, which I would call the, the big mind, this is the small mind, the big mind the higher consciousness is the mind of acceptance. It's like uh, going up on a mountaintop and seeing things from a bigger perspective. And all of us have that capacity within us. It's, uh, it embraces life as it unfolds without any expectations. It observes what's going on without judging. It sees the big picture, that everything that happens in our life belongs in some way. We may not understand it, but it's a fundamental belief that everything belongs, even all the hardships. Uh, it engages the present moment fully. 
It has a friendly attitude towards all. It seeks to create unity. It loves first and last. If we pay close attention to our, to our mind and, and, we, and the way to do it and how, it's in silence. I think we live in an ADHD culture. We're hyperactive. And so we don't want to stop and pay attention, but we have to enter the silence to, to come to appreciate and experience that higher consciousness. And, and you can see how, in a sense, it has a lot of godlike qualities. For example, have you ever wondered where a thought comes from? Our creativity, it, it comes from nowhere, the emptiness. Uh, it's creative. Or even our capacity to love someone who's unlovable. Where does that come from? It comes from deep within us, our higher consciousness. Um, the wisdom to understand things as they are. And those are all the, the God-like qualities that when scripture says we're made in the image and likeness of God, that's what it's referring to, that we have God's life within us. Uh, St. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives within me. Um, um, I worked with Mother Teresa way back when, and, and she used to say, she put up her hand, five things. She said, everybody would ask, you know, why are you working with the poorest of the poor? Um, what, are you a social worker? Are you trying to change the world? No, she said, five words. You do this to me. What's that about? That's from the, the last judgment in Matthew's gospel. Talks about when you are hungry and, and thirsty and imprisoned. and You do this to me. She sees everybody as another Christ. In other words, she sees the divine in everyone, including herself. And, and that's the perspective we're talking about with the higher consciousness. And, and we can only get to know that, I think, through silence. The, the Tao again, 25 years, 2,500 years ago. This is what we're talking about doing. Empty your mind of all thoughts. Let your heart be at peace. Watch the turmoil of beings, but contemplate their return. Each separate being in the universe returns to the common source. Returning to the source is serenity. Clean house. This is beginning of self, towards self-forgiveness. As I mentioned before, anger is a symptom. It's not the problem. Um, Often what, is, what anger is about, what's behind anger, is I'm not getting what I want or I'm getting what I don't want, when you really come down to it. Um, the, the, my, often we're not aware of how much anger rules our lives. The, the way I think, think of anger, if I were to define it, it's um, feeling plus judgment equals anger. Pay attention how much we're judging other people and especially ourselves. Just notice, I bet you can't go 10 minutes without judging them. We're all that way. And, and that's really the, the energy of anger, that, that's the th thought of anger within us. Um, and so what, what anger reveals, whenever we're angry about something, and, and I ask my patients, you know, I'm really angry, and I ask, well, what are you really angry about? And, well, he did this and that. Well, what, and, and how hard it is for them to, to see what they're really angry about. Often they're angry at themselves, and it's hard for them to admit that or, or see that. 
um, but it reveals their tender spots, where they feel, where people feel vulnerable. Like you mentioned with the, the high school kids, they're, 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 it's about self-esteem because that's where their vulnerability is. They, they have very fragile self-esteem, and so the anger is to protect it. And so they have to look at, well, why do I have such little, why do I value myself so poorly? Then you have to ask that question. Um, so how do we clean house? Well, you begin with personal reflection. We used to call it the examination of conscience. To, to sit down and, and, and ask ourselves, what am I really angry about? What's triggering it? And pay attention to what's underneath it. Uh, since the other day I was at Kohl's, and uh, um, there was a long line, and there was only one person at the cash register, and I had this lady next to me, and she says, how disrespectful. They only have one, uh, one person at the cash register. How can they do it? You know what she was doing? You could see the anger just building. Because of what was her thought? She was being disrespected. Right? But that's an insane idea. Why there's one, had nothing to do with her, that there was one, maybe somebody didn't show up for work, who knows? But see how she took it personally. And, and that's what feeds the anger, but, but we're not aware. I, I didn't want to tell, like, give her my book or something. They said, what are you really angry about, lady? Well, she disrespected me. Well, what do you mean? You, you got to get at what makes that disrespectful. And be able to stand back with your wise conscience and say, wait a minute, maybe it has nothing to do with me. Then the anger dissolves. But you can see how it builds up. Um, um, another guy that, that has temper tantrums, I was talking with him, and, and he, he says, uh, what it came down to is, I need to be right. And he'd have all kinds of arguments with his wife because she questioned him. And, and so I said, why does that bother you? Well, you start picking away and, and, and unpeeling the onion, and it's his belief that he needs to be right. So why do you need to be right? Well, it, it turns out that his parents would tell him over again, you're, you're worthless, you're wrong. And so he has very low self-esteem, and he, he believes he needs to be right to feel good about himself. But stand back, is that a rational idea? What if you're wrong? So what? But you see, you have to, it takes work to develop that perspective. All right? Welcome criticism. Um, how, many, how many people enjoy criticism? <laughs> Nobody enjoys it, but it's beneficial. All right, and I asked my patient, can criticism ever really harm you? What do you think? Can criticism harm you? How? Well, I mean, we think about it. All right. If somebody criticizes you, you listen to what they say, and you assess it, and, and you evaluate, and maybe they point out something you weren't aware of. I mean, our capacity for self-deception is close to infinite, you know. And so they might point out something, and, and you think about it. Thank you. I, I'm happy you pointed that out. If they're off the wall, it doesn't make any sense. You know what you can do? Thank them and ignore it. So how does it hurt you? How does criticism hurt? It, but if we have an expectation that I'm perfect, any criticism will be devastating. See, so you have to get what's, what's, what's going on beneath it. What are your expectations? Right? See, your enemy is your friend. Uh, this is... This, this, is a, this is a tough one. It's called projection, right? This, um, I don't do this in the first session with, with my patients, okay. 
like when a patient complains about, my boss is an SOB, he does this and that and everything else, and I, I invite them to tell me everything they hate about this guy and go into, into detail. And after I've met with him a while and had a, a close enough relationship, I asked them, can you identify with any of those qualities? Almost always, if you spot it, you got it. If you spot it, you got it. And when I was a kid, we used to say, it takes one to know one. It takes one to know one. And so be very aware of what you hate in, in other people because that's your shadow. It's, a, it's, a, it's an avenue to self-awareness. And whenever there's uh, an emotional charge in a relationship, it, it, it's a, a clue that it's the tip of an iceberg and there's projection going on, that it's about us. By the same token, often when people criticize us, who are they really talking about? Themselves. Right? It's autobiographical. Right? And so we don't have to always take it personally. And that's why we assess with our wise mind, does it really apply, and see what we can learn from it. Okay? Make friends with your demons. Um, and so look at the things that bother you and try to learn what you can from them. It's interesting, when Jesus would cast out the devils, you know what he would ask them? He tried to get to know their names. He wants to get to know them. And the Buddha, what he would do is he says, uh, he invites people to have tea with your demons. Get to know them. Because it's revealing very much your tender spots and what you cling to too, dis too desperately and you're afraid of losing. Okay, then you become angry or threatened because you're hanging on to it. If you let it go, you wouldn't be angry about it. Or frightened, by the way. What are you afraid of? It's, it's what you're hanging on to too desperately. I'm afraid of losing my health. Well, the reality is we're all going to die. We're going to lose it anyhow. <laughs> but you're hanging on to it too tightly. Okay. And of course, admitting our faults to another is beneficial. It, it's a humbling experience. Uh, and we're surprised often by the acceptance we, uh, we get from them. And, um, and often their feedback can be very helpful. So the admitting becomes very important. What's the attitude towards a lot of our faults? I, I love this poem by Rumi called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes at an as an un unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there is a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of, it, of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful to whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. That's the attitude of acceptance that we're talking about. God, then the Tao. A great nation is like a great man. Does this sound like the steps? When he makes a mistake, he realizes it, step four. Having realized it, he admits it, step five. Having admitted it, he corrects it, makes amends, steps uh, eight and nine. He, and he considers those who point out his faults as his most benevolent teachers. Welcome criticism. 
He thinks of his enemy as the shadow he himself casts. That's the projection. And, and so when you're angry at something, ask what, what people say, you make me angry. Of course, that's ridiculous. That's giving them power. They can't make you anything. It's how you react to them. Okay? But when we are angry, ask us, what is it about what that person did or what is it about that person that you're angry about, that you're reacting with irritation? And if you unpeel the onion, you know what you'll find? It's something about yourself. And that's actually good news. You know why? Can you change the other person? Uh -uh. How many people in the universe can you change? One, yourself. And so everything, the steps invite you, and this is what, for me, therapy is about, is it's constantly putting that searchlight on yourself. And, and you empower yourself by doing that because you can change yourself. And, and that's, to me, the beauty of it. All right, six and seven. This is really cleaning house and going uh, a little more deeply into it. Um, the obstacles, the, the big book says there's always a sticking point. And that's a good point. And, and that's what I was telling you, we, we love our illnesses. We love our anger at some point. We say we hate it, but secretly we love it. And that's what we have to get at. What's, what's at stake for us? Why do we hang on? to the anger so desperately. Like I asked my patient, okay, you hate your anger and you want to get rid of it, okay? If you could just push a button and that anger would go away, what keeps you from pushing that button? You say you want to get rid of it, well, just don't do it. Uh, they don't know why. And, and so that gives you a clue that there's a secret benefit to it. Otherwise, they give it up. Um, all right, there's a, so what, so what we do is transform, not remove our shortcomings. Right, there's a, a traditional tale. This, uh, uh, there's a village. In the middle, middle of the village is a poison tree. And so all the elders got together to decide, what are we going to do with this tree? And they were arguing back and forth. And there was one group that said, you've got to cut it down. It's dangerous to everybody. Let's just cut down that tree, and then everybody will be safe. And there was another group that said, no, this is, uh, this is from God. It's a gift from God. It's nature. That there's, we can't just cut it down. That wouldn't be right. Let's put a fence around it and, and to protect us from it, but we can't destroy it. And then finally, after hearing all these arguments, the, uh, the uh, council elder stood up and said, what I suggest is that we take the fruit of the tree and examine it and transform it into medicine. Come to understand what this fruit is about and how we can use it for our own benefit. And, and that's what we do when we look at our faults. Instead of shaming ourselves, which, which the angry mind wants to do, it wants to get rid of our faults, what we have to do is explore it and enter deeply into it to understand what it's telling us about ourselves so we can learn. Um, uh, it's interesting, what, what I tell my patients, what therapy is about, they always think it's a, a self-improvement project. I'm here to make a better version of myself. Well, I said, I don't think of it that way. Um, rather, what it is, is coming to an acceptance of yourself as you are, as good enough, and to face whatever it is that keeps you 
from just being yourself. So all you have to do is be yourself. So what keeps you from doing that? And that's what character defects are. And that's what the big ego is. It's, uh, you, you won't be happy until you kill the ego. You gotta kill it. Um, and you, you know what you find out when you do battle with the ego? It's nothing. It's just a thought. It's the way we think about ourselves. They're thought bubbles. And if we can let them go, like the need that I'm so important, if you didn't think that, you wouldn't be so angry. And, and that's the work. It's not as simple, and that's, that's the work of it. And so don't uproot it too quickly. Learn from it and investigate it carefully. Because very often, um, they're ghosts from the past. Over and over again with my parents, we, we, we go into their, their childhoods. And how many voices, if you listen carefully, how many messages have you gotten from your parents that you came to believe? As a child, of course, you believe them. But as an adult, we live by that, that advice, and it doesn't make any sense. But we don't question it. And we're not even aware of how much we do it. Like the gentleman I was telling you about, his parents tell him, you know, you're worthless. You're a loser. And he, at some level, came to believe that. And, and you have to stand back and, and examine these voices. Also, there are voices from our society. Um, you ever notice we, we live in an insane society? I mean, look at the messages. Uh, uh, he who gets the most right, uh, is the happiest. Um, uh, and that's why I think there's so many addictions in our society, because it's, um, th this is the message that we get and, and our kids get. I want it all and I want it now. If you live by that as your motto, uh, what do you think the chances are of becoming frustrated and angry? About 100%. And then, then when you're disappointed, um, th then you turn to drugs or alcohol or something else. Right? Um, also, the next thing is notice the storytelling. Um, Whenever we have an emotion, like with the anger, that we're telling ourselves stories. We may not always recognize it, but, but we are. You know how long a feeling lasts? 90 seconds. It comes and it goes. And you know what makes, what intensifies and prolongs the, the, the feeling, the reaction? It's the storytelling. Pay attention when you, for example, when you're angry. How dare that guy do that to me? I didn't deserve that. He did that to me before. And all the storytelling, and we dwell on it, and it can go on for sometimes years, like with the grudgeaholic. Listen to the stories they're telling. They're really stories they're telling themselves, and they believe it. And they make the other person the enemy, and it's all storytelling. But we have to identify with our wise mind the stories we're telling ourselves and ask yourself, does this really make any sense? And, and plus, I, I think, to recognize if we hang on to the anger, who does it hurt? Ourselves. Uh, AA says, uh, nurturing anger is like consuming rat poison and expecting the rat to die. So when we're angry at someone who hurt us years ago, they're living their merry lives, and we're hanging on to it. It's destroying, it's a poison that's destroying us. Notice also the roles that, that we, we play. Um, per, uh, perfectionist. 
high expectations, and our culture uh, promotes that. Um, AA has uh, uh, another saying is, the road to disappointment and resentment is paid by expectation. So whenever, whenever we're angry about something, to ask ourselves, what is it I'm really expecting with that wise mind? And ask, is this really realistic? Is this how life really is? And as soon as you say should, you know it's an expectation. And, and I tell my patients that, uh, you know what an expectation is? Premeditated disappointment. <laughs> and so, we can't help it, it just happens, it's a thought, but, but we, can, we can examine it and hold them lightly. See, it's when we hang on to these expectations, well, you should, you should do the dinner every night, and if you don't, you know, you're failing as uh, my wife, or, where did that come from? See, it's all in the mind, it's an expectation, it's not reality. But if we believe it, that's what causes the trouble. Uh, the victim role, all right. And I ask my patients, well, to, to look at the costs and benefits. Right? Being a victim, what's the benefit of thinking of yourself as a victim? There is one. What do you think? Yeah, I don't have to be responsible. You're at fault. You can express anger. Yeah, you're the, yeah, it can, gives you justification for your anger. You might get sympathy till you wear the other person out. So there's a great benefit in, in thinking of yourself as a victim. And, and that's why we hang on to these roles and ways of thinking. But if we can examine it and see they don't make sense, we can gradually learn to just let them go. Steps eight and nine. Uh, the antidote to anger is forgiveness. Now, what is forgiveness? Um, well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not condoning it. If somebody does something wrong, we don't pretend it's not. It's, um, it's not forgetting. Uh, we don't forget the hurts. It's the, the, our memory helps us to protect ourselves. Um, so it's not saying that it's okay. Um, but what forgiveness is, the word itself, forgiving. It's a giving in advance. It's not deserved either. To anybody, they don't. Nobody deserves forgiveness. It's a gift that we give for our own sake. It's a giving up of the anger because we're recognizing how much it harms who we are and our relationships, and so we give it up and we replace it with compassion. And why compassion? Because that's who we really are with our wise mind. You know who we are when we really examine with our wise mind. We're love. That's who we are. We're made in the image and likeness of God, and who is God? God is love, and he who lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him. That's the truth. But that takes a higher consciousness that needs to be cultivated in silence and in hard work in order to offset this, uh, the, the little mind of the anger. All right? And this list, who, do, who have you harmed most? It, it's ourselves. We have to make peace with ourselves. And that's what we're talking about, coming to accept our own imperfections. Um, that, that's one definition of grace that I like is uh, accepting that we are accepted even though we're unacceptable. And that, that's self-compassion. Um, and and what, what happens is that really our angry reactions and thinking 
is really a habit that we've developed, and that's why it takes on an addictive quality. And so we have to recognize our habitual patterns and what triggers our angers and our own anger styles and what our tendencies are, accept and understand them, and decide to do something different. For example, I, I often tell people who are hot-headed, uh, they, they react impulsively, and if they know that's your tendency, I tell them the seven T's from AA, take the time to think the thing through. Don't react, just stand back. And so you free yourself from that reacting to conscious responding according to your values. What do you really value? And that's, use your values as the guide for your life and not just the reacting. And then persist in the change. And, and of course, that's the forgiving others and then often asking for forgiveness. Um, I love this uh, story from the Buddha. Like people say, well, you know, I can't keep from reacting. Uh, is that really true? All right. One day the Buddha was walking across a plot of land when a man came up and angrily started shaking his fist in the Buddha's face, saying he had no right to be walking there. The Buddha looked at the man and said, tell me, if you prepared a lovely gift for someone and you reach out to give it to them, but they refuse to accept it, to whom would the gift belong? To me, of course, the man replied. Just so, the Buddha said, I'm not accepting the gift of your anger. Therefore, it remains with you. So when people are angry with us, we don't have to be angry back. And I, often, I'll, I mean, when they get angry back, I said, you, you hate their anger, but you're imitating them. You're becoming just like them. And, and the Buddha said, hatred never overcomes hatred. Only love overcomes hatred. That is the eternal law. Does that sound familiar? This is 500 years before Jesus. It, it's, it's, part, it's our wisdom of, of the ages, and I think that's what the steps are about. All right. So these are the four steps in, in nine. The Tao, again, the, you, have to, you have to cultivate virtue to replace the vices. Right? Right. Steps 10 and 11, 12, I won't go into them because I want to leave more time for questions. Step 10 is really uh, cleaning house. It's step four through seven. It's just that we have to do it every day and keep doing it. And so, again, observe every day your your habitual reactions, spot checks. Take time during the day just to stop. Wait, what's going on here? Especially when you have a reaction and pay attention to it. Step 11 is really about trusting God. And that means praying every day. And there are many, many ways of praying. By the way, prayer doesn't really change God. You know, it changes us. And when we pray, like one way I like to think of prayer as paying full attention to the present moment. And, and when you do that, you reach the presence of the sacred or the divine. Paying full attention. All the distractions, all those thoughts, empty our minds of those thoughts. Um, this one Buddha says, this, listen to his prayer. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Dwelling in the present moment, I know this is a wonderful moment. Just think, if isn't that relaxing just to, if you do that with your breath and how calming that is? 
And finally, step 12, it's um, what, we, what we become aware of in working the steps, this is helping others, is that we're not as disconnected as we think are. The angry mind separates, it's a we-they attitude and it separates all of us. But from the higher consciousness, we, we realize that we're all one. And when other people are hurting, we're hurting, like the body of Christ. And when we help others, we're helping ourselves. And have that kind of awareness, even that love commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, not more, not less than yourself, but the way I like to think of it, love thy neighbor as another self. And so the loving attitude you have towards yourself overflows in loving the other person and it comes back to you. We're all one in this. That, that's the perspective we're talking about. And, and when Jesus says to love your enemy, you know who our biggest enemy is? And if we let anger rule our lives, we're, uh, we're defeating ourselves. Right? And so love of others really starts with a healthy self-love and gratitude that we've, we've been loved, that we've been loved, we're loving and lovable. And that's what we do naturally and let it unfold. That's being ourselves. But it takes a lot of work to see, to face what it is that keeps us from being ourselves. And that's, those are all the character defects we're talking about with the, with the earlier steps. Okay. Whatever joy there is in this world all comes from wanting others to be happy. Whatever suffering there is in this world all comes from wanting oneself to be happy. Okay. Thank you for your attention. Anger Anonymous and other self-help books by Dr. Ortman can be purchased on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Be sure to check out our next event when author Evelyn Milstein will talk about her book, The Underground Railroad, A Movement That Changed America. That's February 8th at 6 p.m. at the Warren Civic Center Library. This has been a Straight from the Author podcast, a production of mywarn.org.